Welcome to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm joined by Dina Svandiari, a senior advisor at the International Crisis Group, and my colleague Sajad Jayad, a fellow here at the Sundry Foundation based in Baghdad. And we're here to talk about the latest round of, uh, I don't know if we're going to call it diplomacy or thaw or talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran that were hosted in Iraq. Uh, Dina and Sajad, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. So, I wanted to start by asking uh, whichever of you or both of you wants to jump in first to give us a little bit of an overview of what's actually happened in these uh, direct talks that appear to have started taking place in April uh, between emissaries, really senior emissaries of the governments of Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, meeting in Baghdad. So it looks like uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia have decided finally to to sit around a table and, and hash out some of their difficulties. I think there's not much known at the moment about the um, the the what's going on within those talks, but it does seem to be on um, Yemen. It seems to, they seem to be focusing at the moment on Yemen and and whether they can find an end to that conflict. Um, the reason for that is, I think the Saudis. Uh, are now quite actively looking for a face-saving way out of the conflict. Um, And uh, the Iranians have made it clear for a while that they're willing to engage on Yemen. Um, So it seemed to be a good time to to meet and, and talk about that. I am a little bit worried about what will come of it because the assumption is that Iran uh, will be able to call the shots and will be able to get the Houthis to do something um, to perhaps, you know, agree uh, to to a ceasefire or something of the sort. Uh, and I'm a little worried that Iran doesn't quite have that sway over the Houthis, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Well, and, and before we get into, I think we, I do want to get in, into as much detail as we can on on the specifics uh, of, of this conflict and some of the other regional issues they might talk about. Um, but even before we get to that, can you what, what can you tell us about uh, the the level of representation at these talks and what was the trigger for this actually happening now in April of 2021 after several years in which uh, uh, different regional actors have sort of yearned for or pushed for or, or, or asked for this kind of uh, uh, discussion? Um, so it seems to be relatively senior. I think what's more interesting, um, other than the seniority of the people that were there, is that it seems to also have included the deep state in both countries. Um, we have to remember that on the Iranian side, uh, while the Ministry of Foreign Affairs under uh, Zarif um, seems to be the face of Iranian foreign policy in the region, it's the Revolutionary Guards that have been quite active. And in this particular situation, it seems they were at the table for these talks. Um, the the why now aspect of it, um, from my perspective, it's it's a couple of things. Um, it is the exhaustion in Yemen, as I mentioned. Um, I think it's the also the Biden administration has made it clear that um, they will not act like the Trump administration did, and they will not give the Saudis carte blanche to do uh, what they want uh, in the region and, and certainly in Yemen. Um, so I think there's a little bit of nervousness on the Saudi side. Uh, and and a desire to kind of resolve their own conflicts. And of course, 
the pandemic didn't help anybody. Um, it just made everything worse in the Middle East, and it, and it made everybody realize that despite the fact that um, they weren't necessarily happy with their neighbors and, and didn't want to work with their neighbors, that they might have to because uh, a public health crisis like this doesn't really know any borders. So it kind of, that these are the reasons why now was a good time. Sajad, what can you tell us about how, uh, what sort of what steps led to these talks and how it came to pass that they that that they happened when they did and and where they did? Yeah, so I mean, Baghdad has been the host of similar talks in the past, um, whether it was between the Americans and the Iranians or the Americans, um, or, sorry, or the Iranians and the Saudis. It has happened in the past. I mean, notably before uh, the nuclear talk negotiations moved to Oman, they started off in Baghdad back all the way in, in 2010. So Baghdad is doing this out of its self-interest, um, and it is represented at the highest level by the PM because he, uh, for years now, has been carrying messages between Iran, the Saudis, and the Americans. He's concerned about Iraq's stability, and he believes that unless the Iranians and the Saudis and Americans are sort of talking to each other, his country will not be stable. So he needs talks for sort of a selfish reason to, to ensure that Iraq stabilizes because there's going to be less competition between Iran and Saudi. And uh, interestingly, he was formerly the head of intelligence in Iraq. He's uh, invited to these talks, the uh, head of intelligence in Saudi and also the intelligence ministry. Uh, in Iran, which is represented in the talks, but that represents the sort of the civilian government. Yes, the Revolutionary Guards are also aware of the talks and, and involved, but they're not leading. Um, and I think that's a sign that they're trying as much as possible to try diplomacy first before they get into the nitty gritty of, you know, the details of, um, you know, what they want to achieve in terms of operational outcomes, uh, which is led obviously by sort of the Revolutionary Guards rather than the Foreign Ministry or Intelligence Service. And from the Iraqi side, as long as these sides are talking, even if there's not great outcomes right now, then that leads to an immediate decrease in tension. That, in theory, should lead to less attacks, for example, on um, U.S. embassy in Baghdad or U.S. troop presence in uh, in other um, areas in Iraq, such as Erbil, for example. That hopefully should mean that the U.S. does not undertake any sort of risky actions in terms of targeting uh, Iranian or pro-Iranian assets inside Iraq and so on and so forth. Even the media and propaganda that is either pro, for example, U.S. or pro-Iran uh, dials down some of its uh, rhetoric because these sides are talking to each other. So that's sort of the first um, barometer of success for these talks is that the fact that they did begin talking to each other and that Iraq was the venue. Beyond that, I think, you know, whatever the outcomes in six, eight, 12 months, and maybe as Dina said, there's not going to be a lot of progress in these talks. Uh, maybe it'll have to be another venue. Maybe or we'll need to see what happens in Vienna, for example. Maybe these talks don't really, uh, you know, uh, end in any way. They just sort of continue as a channel um, for various groups to talk outside sort of the formal government-to-government talks. Uh, even then, I think the fact that um, they are willing to talk to each other is positive for Iraq. And that's probably what Iraq um, can, you know, hope for at maximum, is to keep these sides engaged. And hopefully that leads to less tensions inside Iraq. Well, so why um, why do you think they chose to to meet with Iraq as the host? Give, I mean, given that they're there are other options, um, you know, including uh, a sort of more faraway neutral venue like Geneva. And, and there's been lots of uh, back and forth with uh, uh, Iranian officials visiting other Gulf, uh, other Arab monarchies in the Gulf uh, that have better relationships with uh, with Iran. So one could have imagined, um, you know, Oman or, or even the UAE as a venue for this. Why why Iraq? And, and what's this? And I mean, you've talked a little bit about this, but is this because 
because of the uh, it, it, it's being perceived as more neutral than than say another another uh, Gulf uh, state, or is it because of the personal relationships that Mustafa Prime Minister Mustafa Kadhimi has uh, with officials in both these countries? Yeah, but I mean exactly that. So Iraq is probably the most neutral country um, in the Middle East to both countries in terms of you know it has good relations with Saudi, has good relations with Iran, and um, nowhere else in the Gulf can can either country call upon you know sort of a similar partner. Um, and Iraq is through the pre-M, Kadhimi, the personal relationship that he's developed with Mohammed bin Salman, the intelligence services in Saudi, likewise in Rouhani's government in Iran, I think he's used his personal relationships to try to bring these two sides together. So in theory, you know, there's nothing stopping these talks from moving elsewhere. Perhaps they will move to Oman. It has happened in the past. Maybe they'll move further away, as you said, to Geneva or Vienna or somewhere else. But right now at this stage, I think Iraq is obviously the good first stepping stone for sort of trying to achieve um, a a format for the dialogue, what outcomes they're looking for. Iraq is a good venue to begin sort of feeling each other out to see, you know, what the appetite is for dialogue. And nobody loses anything. Iraq is still friendly with both countries. Uh, Iranians can travel freely to Iraq and so can the Saudis. And the PM himself, PM Kalami, is invested in these talks. So we sort of guarantee the safety of both sides and he's used his relationships to bring both together. So therefore it makes sense that the talks begin in Iraq, but certainly there is a possibility for them to move elsewhere. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. Thanks for listening. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and this is Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. I'm talking to Dina Sfandiari, a senior advisor at the International Crisis Group, and Sajad Jihad, a fellow here at the Century Foundation, about the potential thaw between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Dina, let's go back to something you, you talked about a little bit in the first segment, uh, which is the the substance of, of the disagreements and, and where there might be uh, a room for common ground or de- de-escalation. Uh, if you want uh, to start with Yemen, but maybe take us on a little tour of the, the major uh, flashpoints between Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, in, in the Middle East, and, and tell us where you see potential for any kind of, of, of even incremental improvement in, in the situation? Wow, so not an easy question. Um, I'm going to try to do that uh, quite short. Um, so the, the the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia, I mean, it goes way, way back, and, it, and it's, it's religious, it's political, um, it's economic, uh, it really is wide-ranging. Um, in terms of today in the region, I think almost every other country in the region is is involved in this rivalry. Uh, in Yemen, the Saudis uh, see Iran's hand behind the Houthis. While initially, when the when the war first broke out, I think they probably overestimated that. Um, today, it's become a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy where the Iranians actually are. 
um, helping the Houthis out quite a lot, uh, despite the fact that the group has many um, many of their own internal grievances uh, that, that have nothing to do with Iran. Then uh, you have differences in Syria, you have differences in Iraq. Um, in Iraq, the the you know the Iranians are quite actively backing uh, their militias on the ground. Uh, Iraq is quite a key arena for Iran because it's uh, it's a neighboring country. There's you know 900 plus miles of porous border between the two, um, and and you know there's a there's a political and uh, and uh, religious constituency for Iran in Iraq, and so it really is a key country uh, for Iran. Uh, this poses a problem also for Saudi Arabia. Although Iraq is not as key to it, um, it does have interests in the country and it does want to increase its investments in Iraq. Um, you know, the, you could say the same for, for Lebanon. That's another arena of, of, of competition between the two. Um, and so it, it really is just a competition for greater influence in the region uh, and for uh, a legitimacy of their visions uh, for the region. Um, you know, the Iranians are very much uh, all about defense of minorities and uh, ensuring that, that the, the Shias have equal rights to the Sunnis um, in the region. And, uh, and Saudi Arabia is more about, more about being a leader of all Muslims in the region. And anyway, inevitably, they're, they're going to uh, come up against one another. Well, so, I mean, let, let, let's take a couple of these in, in turn, and, and Sajad, feel free to, to jump in uh, as, as, as we sort of take this tour. Um, starting, let, let's start with Yemen. I think we'll go Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. Um, in in Yemen, uh, we've already heard, heard you mention that, you know, maybe Saudi Arabia is, is interested in a face-saving way out, or at least a, a, a de-escalation, um, and, um, and maybe... Iran doesn't have the kind of leverage that that one imagines it does over the Houthis. But what sort of what sort of trade offs might each side be be willing to make? What what would Iran be potentially willing to 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 give up and uh, uh, in exchange for what? And, and similarly, what might uh, Saudi Arabia be willing to give Iran um, in exchange for Iran facilitating a climb down in in Yemen? Um, so I think the the problem is that you're never going to get a solution uh, for each area, for each country that these countries are involved in. So the solution won't just be in Yemen. Any solution or any agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia is going to end up spanning the region. There's going to be a quid pro quo with different countries in the region, or at least that's how I envisage it. Um, I think if you're to get progress, or if you get to get anywhere, really, in these talks, first... Um, the the Saudi side really has to sit down and think about what it is that they want. What do they want from Iran? Asking Tehran to unilaterally disengage from the region is just, you know, that might be the, the very, very end of the process, but certainly it's not going to work as an ask at the beginning of the process. So there has to be a little bit of thought put into what they can accept in the region uh, in terms of Iranian influence, what they uh, can give up. And, and, you know, hopefully set for themselves some red lines for these talks uh, in, you know, one thing that you could foresee from Tehran's perspective, Yemen is a little bit of a low hanging fruit because they don't have that many interests in the country. Um, yes, the Houthis 
uh, are an ally today. But um, but but beyond that, uh, Iran isn't really interested in Yemen. It's quite far away. It doesn't have that many raw resources that it might want. There's not that much of a constituency for it there. Um, and whereas for Saudi Arabia, it's an incredibly important country. And the Houthis really are a serious problem. So one could imagine that as a result of these talks, uh, the Saudis are able to get some compromises from the Iranian side, or at least some assurances from the Iranian side, that they would be able to get the, the Houthis, for example, not to... Um, to uh, attack Marib uh, or to to come and sit down and actually negotiate wholeheartedly to find a solution to the conflict. Um, my worry, as I mentioned earlier, is that Iran may not have that influence over the Houthis, particularly at a time where the Houthis have made some important gains in the country. Uh, and so from their perspective, you know, why sit and negotiate now when they're when they're quite strong? Um, in return for that, there could be, uh, for example, some acceptance of Iranian influence over over Iraq. Now, I don't know how that would look um, concretely, given that there is a there is a real problem with Iranian presence in Iraq at the moment amongst the population, or at least in certain quarters of the population. But um, but that's you know this is the type of quid pro quo that you could imagine between the two. I mean, the, the, it strikes me, and, and Sajad, maybe you can speak to this, that there's there's a fundamental mismatch right now in terms of motivation to, to change the, the status quo. Uh, for for Iran, uh, a lot of moves that, you know, strike me as, as quite disruptive um, and, and in a way sort of uh, uh, destabilizing to state structures around the region, uh, these moves seem to be serving Iran's interests quite well. And unlike uh, in Iran's confrontation with the United States, where sanctions and other pressure uh, really are hurting Iran and they have a sort of motivation to find some way uh, to get relief uh, in the regional posture, uh, for example, their, their, their support for some of the, the sort of worst elements of the, uh, the Hashid al-Shabi, the PMF in, in Iraq, um, these investments are increasing Iran's influence uh, in, in its, in its uh, neighbor to the West. Um, and so it's hard to imagine, um, you know, what sort of what sort of uh, carrot or, 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 or small prize would be worth them giving up one of these pieces of leverage right now. So I'm, I'm wondering, and I know you've thought and written a lot, Sajad, about the, uh, the, the really the detailed um, uh, power calculus of, 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 of these sorts of interventions and how deleterious their impact on Iraq is and, and how Iraq has to find a way to be friends with all, all its neighbors. Um, so how do you see at this moment the, the sort of ripeness or the uh, the viability of, of of these two sides actually being being ready to to start to trade bits of influence away. Yeah, I mean, partly it depends on what happens with the nuclear negotiations. Um, if there's progress on that front, and if uh, the Iranian government, the civilian government, is able to show progress in terms of delivering for you know the population at large, sanctions relief, uh, bump to the economy. A return to some sort of normal, you know, where they were 15 years ago, for example, or, or, or earlier. Then I think the case for, um, you know, making agreements with Saudis on, you know, things going on in Iraq or Yemen or Lebanon or Syria or elsewhere become much easier and then become, you know, much more logical. Uh, the issue is if they don't make uh, progress with sort of the U.S. Um, on on the nuclear negotiations, there will be, as you say, very little incentive 
to suddenly say, right, let's give a boy more leverage in, in, in the Middle East because we, you know, we wish or we hope that in the future things will turn out better for us. I think that will be an illogical step. So instead, I think they'll keep up the pressure um, on Saudi and others in order to see sort of the nuclear negotiations succeed. And now you began to hear some of the change in posture. You know, Mohammed bin Salman gave an interview recently where he, you know, his tone on Iran changed. Uh, it was it was much more positive than, than it was before, and you can actually hear now from um, colleagues in the Gulf who say, you know, we want the nuclear talks to succeed, whereas you know they were trying to scupper them a few years ago. So I think now they understand that if um, if Iran is to be sort of um, you know to, to reach an agreement with it, then you need to also deal with the nuclear issue because that is probably the biggest thing that affects Iran's foreign policy at this moment in time. Are they? willing to, you know, die on that hill. They've proven in the past that they are. They want to be able to have nuclear energy, whether that leads to nuclear weapons or not, is a secondary matter. And I think the other countries have sort of realized that, you know, the Iranians have, have already made you know, strong moves towards that and there's no stopping it now. So the only thing that they can do, as you say, is try to um, roll in other elements into the package. Yes, we'll agree on sort of, you know, having nuclear energy in Iran, but can you also make sure that, you know, other elements of your government or your state don't do X, Y, or Z in particular, you know, countries like Iraq, Yemen, or Lebanon, elsewhere. And I think for the Saudis, their main concern is, in Iraq, uh, Dean has already spoken about Yemen in Iraq, they want to make sure that there are no elements in Iraq that will target the Saudis, you know, with, whether it's drones, whether it's, you know, um, other forms of sort of attack on, on Saudi assets. They're very much concerned that Iran has a bit of deniability there. It's not Iranians launching any attacks from Iran. It's, there's no Iranian troop presence in Iran. But there are pro-Iranian groups that, that Iran has significant influence, if not control over, that are have been, you know, talking about targeting the Saudi, have targeted Saudi in the past, and the Saudis want to make sure that the Iranians put a stop to that. So I think that's sort of a small step um, will lead to will lead to sort of bigger, further steps down the line, and that's what the Saudis want to see right away. Is it, can they stop these groups from targeting Saudi? That will be positive, and I think for that, the Iranians won't be giving up any leverage. They can tell these groups, yeah, you know what, stop targeting Saudi. If things break down in the future, then they can always, you know, ramp that up again. Um, and, and similar in, in Lebanon and elsewhere, I think it's these sort of incremental steps that, that um, Saudi is looking to, to achieve. And that doesn't mean Iran gives away its leverage completely, but that sort of shows, you know, they're trying to reach a reasonable outcome. Um, and beyond that, I think, like I say, um, if the environment changes where the civilian government in Iran can show that it's made progress talking to Saudi and, and the US um, on the nuclear file, if sanctions are removed, then it makes it very, very difficult for the revolutionary guards to argue for increasing a tempo of hostility against Saudi or, or the Americans in the Middle East. The argument would then be then, well, surely we should reduce tensions. We shouldn't try to escalate because we're getting what we want. And I think that's probably what the Rouhani government is working to, but also a significant element in you know, Iranian foreign policy making uh, wants to achieve. They do not want to be ransomed to sort of the guards' vision of how to deal with these other countries. Well, the, one of the things that Obama got a lot of heat for um, was his, his uh, publicly stating that Iran and, and Saudi Arabia have to learn to share the region. Um, and that, that comment was was sort of... Uh, turned around against him and, and you know, portrayed as, as uh, defeatism in the face of Iran or, you know, various other caricatures. Um, I think it's it's a truism, right? Of course, the, these two powers have to share the region because ne neither is going anywhere. Um, but one of the one of the things that um, 
that strikes me looking at at the trajectory over the last 10 or 15 years is that uh, while Iran has has cultivated and expanded its influence uh, through spending considerable money on uh, non-state armed or hybrid actors, as well as sustained uh, other non-military or quasi-military forms of, of engagement, especially we see in, in Iraq, uh, Syria, and, and Lebanon, where the, where the strategy is, is pretty whole of government uh, in, in dealing with uh, projecting Iranian influence. The Saudi approach uh, went from inattention and disengagement for a long period of time uh, to a, a sort of spasmodic surge of trying to force outcomes when Mohammed bin Salman first uh, rose to power and you know tried to replace the Lebanese prime minister and uh, you know engage in a couple of other uh, uh, moves that you know, none, none of none of which worked to reassert uh, a sort of Saudi dominance the way he hoped uh, and and I'm I'm kind of interested in whether uh, whether we're starting to see some evidence of Saudi Arabia finding a different or more effective way to project sustained influence in places like uh, Iraq or or even Syria, which would, it seems, welcome some kind of balancing relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's not that they want a new uh, external meddler or or you know bully or overlord, but they would like to have some kind of uh, you know whether it's through direct foreign investment or the the other sorts of tools that that states actually welcome uh, getting balancing support from. Uh, have we seen uh, any any sign of of that becoming a one a, a sustained Saudi strategy and two of Saudi developing the actual capacity to project influence rather than sort of act as a as a either spoiler or a sort of you know holder of veto power but not of constructive influence. So I think that the um, I think the Saudis have actually been watching the way one of their neighbors, the Emiratis, has been uh, acting in their foreign policy quite closely, and I think they've noticed some of the gains that the UAE has made by being more assertive in the region, by increasing their influence through military presence, but also through diplomatic and political presence and dialogue. Um, and and I I feel like they're taking a, a you know a, a page out of that book. And they're they're trying to um, trying to repeat it basically. Uh, the Saudis, through what MBS has done since he's rose to power, ha- are starting to be a bit stretched thin, and so um, it's now a question of being a little bit more pragmatic and figuring out what you can and can't do, and how how much you can uh, be present militarily in one place uh, and and you know alongside another. And so I think. They're they're trying their hand at being more pragmatic, at engaging in dialogue. Um, you can even see it within the GCC after the 2017 split uh, between the countries of the of the GCC. The Saudis today uh, are pursuing um, a serious detente with the uh, with the Qataris in particular, even though the Emiratis aren't necessarily on board with that. Um, so I think there's just a lot of jostling going on right now in the region, reacting to this uh, perceived lessening of American presence uh, as protector of the Gulf Arab states, uh, and and also reacting to the growing realization that actually maybe they are more capable of of defending themselves, of setting their own foreign policy, of figuring out um, 
how to pursue their own interests without necessarily having to turn to Washington uh, all the time. In some cases, it will work out. I think the the GCC one uh, and and the the willingness to end that split is a good example of that. Uh, in others, it remains to be seen whether it'll actually lead to anything. It could very well be that the talks between Iran and the Saudis is just another episode in the long ups and downs of their relationship, and it doesn't really lead to anything. But it does seem like the time is ripe for them to at least resolve some of their differences during these talks. Yeah, do you see uh, Sajad any any sort of long range shifts, whether in the viability of the Arab state system that 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 were are coming into play here, or in terms of uh, the the prospect for a a longer term shift to a détente in what's been a long, pretty long running regional hot and cold war? Um, I don't think we're quite there yet to see sort of any significant reforms. You know, we've seen sort of the outcomes of the. Um, so-called Arab Spring, um, you know, if anything, autocratic systems have gotten stronger in this period of time. They realized, you know, they can outlast sort of uh, calls for reform and change, um, that the international system, even countries like the U.S., are not so keen on pushing for, you know, major reforms and overhauls of um, autocratic systems and dictatorships or monarchies. And in fact, they prefer the status quo and they prefer the stability. And I think Unfortunately, but, uh, you know, that has empowered sort of um, a lot of elements uh, in these countries who don't believe democracy is, is progress, who believe that stability is progress, who believe that maintaining the status quo is a good thing because they can point to other countries where there was a lot of chaos. Iraq is an example. Syria is an example. Egypt is an example. Um, and even Lebanon at the moment where, you know, if you try to push for reform, the counter forces are so strong that the country destabilizes. And in terms of sort of capacity on the Saudi side, it's just not there. Um, it never has been, and I don't think it ever will be. It's just realism that has kicked in from Mohammed bin Salman, who, as Dina said, is, has realized there are some things that he can't do, and he needs to adapt, you know, to 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 what his um, capabilities are and what the Saudi state's capabilities are. So putting those two elements together, I think we're not going to suddenly see a shift in, in Saudi's policies in, in the Middle East in, in terms of how it influences other countries. I don't think um, suddenly the Emiratis are going to change the way they do things either. And likewise, I think for the current system, the Arab system, I don't think there's going to be a sudden change in the way you know they deal with each other, the way they deal with their citizens, the way they deal with Iran. Instead, I think it's just sort of a quid pro quo, incremental steps to try to reach some sort of working stability rather than actual real fundamental reforms in each of these countries or on the relationships between them. Dina, uh, I think to end, I wanted to ask you about the upcoming Iranian elections and uh, I guess the discussion that's becoming more public about thinking about a successor uh, to the supreme leader. Do How do either of these uh, uh, sort of domestic power or, or governance uh, questions affect the uh, the way you see the the, the regional uh, dynamics unfolding well it's inevitable that it's going to affect it if there is a if there is a serious change in administration uh, in Iran and by serious change I mean if we go from a situation where we have a, a moderate like Rouhani that we have right now to somebody that's a little bit more hardline and that does seem increasingly likely um, if we have a more hardline government in Iran, it's likely that that a, a tougher Iranian posture in the region will be what we'll, we'll see. Um, having said that, uh, the entire political spectrum in Tehran has been watching the uh, 
the the negotiations, the JCPOA negotiations. And I think that there's a real um, a real belief that this the the talks that Iran has been in has brought Iran a lot of political legitimacy and influence. Um, and so there may very well be a desire to engage in a very uh, open-minded way um, with uh, the the with the Western countries, but also even with the region uh, on a range of issues, just because they've learned their lesson that when Iran isn't the bad guy and when Iran isn't the country that's isolated, it does stand to gain from that. Um, so I do think that even if it's a hardliner that comes in next, it won't be as bad as we would expect it to be, basically. Well, right, because the the posture in the region uh, has been, I would say, quite hardline, regardless of of uh, who's in the presidency, because the you know the the consistent engine of policy comes from the supreme leader um, and and his choice of instrument through the IRGC, um, and that's actually been pretty consistent even through you know from Ahmadinejad. Uh, Khatami, Ahmadinejad, uh, Rouhani, and so on. It's, there's been more consistency than the diplomatic tone would would suggest. Exactly, and actually, I think that's one of the reasons why you have um, you're seeing these talks between the Iranians and the Saudis, because irrespective of what happens on the domestic front and irrespective of what happens with the JCPOA, it, Iranian presence in the region is a fait accompli. It's not that's not going to change. Um, in fact, there may actually be a slight uptick. Uh, in Iranian um, influence, not not influence, but nefarious activities in the region, A, if there is a return to the JCPOA, and B, if there isn't, just because Iran has to make a case for its influence in the region. And so that's part of the reason why the Saudis wanted to resolve some of the regional issues now uh, rather than later. Well, I think we'll end it, we'll end it here. Um, it's great to talk to you both. Uh, Dina Sfandiari, Senior Advisor at International Crisis Group, and Sajad Jiyad, a Baghdad-based fellow at the Century Foundation. Uh, Dina, Sajad, thank you so much for coming on the Order from Ashes podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. It was great to talk to you both. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.